Well, good morning. Uh, it's good to be with you here uh, again today. I decided to take a little bit of a, a break from our uh, study through uh, John uh, to kind of focus a little bit more on uh, Christmas, but it will be uh, related to our study in John, as you'll see. But uh, I was in a conversation uh, with someone the other day, and over the course of our uh, discussion, they used uh, several acronyms I was unfamiliar with, and we've all been in that situation where somebody uses a word or yeah, mentions an acronym uh, that you're unfamiliar with, and you, and you have two choices, right? You can kind of nod and smile uh, and act like you know uh, what they meant and, and what they're saying, and you just kind of see, okay, let's just see where this goes. Uh, or you can reveal your ignorance, that's option number two, and say, uh, you know what, what, what does that word mean, or what do you mean by that? Uh, and uh, while there are times uh, that I opt for that first choice, uh, I usually try and uh, pursue the second one of asking that, okay, so, so what do you mean by that? Uh, and that's also uh, a feeling that we can encounter sometimes when we read Scripture, right? And when we're reading the Bible and we come across something and you're like, I have no idea what that is referring to or what that word means or or anything. And then we have those same two choices, right? We can say, okay, well, let me just kind of keep plowing along uh, and uh, just understand as best as I can. And sometimes that is a good choice. There's a time and a place of, okay, let me just kind of take in Scripture and try and understand as best I can and just plow ahead. But there are other times uh, when it is good and it is helpful to pause and say, okay, I don't understand what is being said here. Uh, and, and I need to, to stop and I need to maybe look up some other uh, references. I need to go and, and look at a commentary. I need to go and uh, make a call to uh, another believer who can help me to understand what is being said here. And that's kind of a little bit of what I want to do today. Two weeks ago when we were last in uh, John's Gospel, we were looking at John chapter 5, uh, verses uh, 30 through 47, where Jesus is presenting this evidence uh, these witnesses that defend him as uh, being the son of God. Uh, and he's going to point to, to many different w- witnesses. Uh, and uh, if you look with me there in uh, John chapter 5, I just want to look briefly at verses 39 to 47. And Jesus is speaking to the, the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders. And he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Uh, And... If we were there, uh, sitting there and kind of just watching and listening to Jesus speak to uh, the Jewish leaders in this conversation, we might have been tempted uh, to raise our hands, kind of like a student raises his hand when he's confused in, in a classroom, says, hey, uh, Jesus, excuse me, uh, what did Moses write about you? 
Because you're, you're saying that and you're presenting it as if it's a very, very big deal. That's as if you believe Moses, you will also believe Jesus. That's what, that's what he is saying. You know, that the two go together inseparably. If you believe one, you will believe the other. And he's saying to these men who claim to believe in Moses, but they reject him, he says, then you don't really understand or believe in Moses. So, so apparently, Moses wrote so clearly and so convincingly about the Messiah who was to come, who is Jesus, that they should understand this, that they should understand that to believe Moses is also to receive Jesus. So we would be tempted if we were there to say, Jesus, excuse me, can you explain what Moses wrote about you? Uh, and that, that's really the question that I want to look at and answer uh, this morning. Uh, and here in, in John chapter 5, this isn't the only occasion that Jesus makes this assertion of how clearly Moses spoke of him. If you, if you turn backwards uh, over uh, just one book uh, to your left to the Gospel of Luke and look at Luke chapter 16, we also see another instance where, where Jesus emphasizes that a faith and an understanding in Moses would lead to a, a belief in him. Luke chapter 16, starting in verse 19. It's a familiar parable, uh, the rich man and Lazarus. And Jesus uh, says this. He says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores, and the poor man died. And was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said... Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, father, to send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Again, you see this, uh, this power that, that Moses had in his writings, that he wrote, again, with such clarity and so convincingly that anybody should be able to read and see and understand that Moses spoke and predicted and wrote about Jesus, the Messiah who was to come. Uh, and so what I want to look at this morning is what exactly did Moses write about Christ. You know, I want to look at four ways in which Moses wrote about Jesus, clearly and convincingly, showing that Jesus is the Messiah. 
And before we look at these four ways that, that Moses wrote, I think it would be helpful just to define what did Moses write. Uh, and Moses wrote the first five books uh, in the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And those are commonly referred to as the Pentateuch uh, or uh, as the Torah. Uh, and whenever you read in the New Testament and it says the law, that's what it's referring back to, those five books. It's not just Leviticus and it's not just the, 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 the portions of the Old Testament that say thou shalt or thou shalt not. The law is all five of those books uh, of Moses. Uh, and so uh, in those five books, that's where we're going to spend the majority of our time uh, this morning, looking and seeing, hey, what did Moses write about Jesus so clearly and so convincingly? And so the first way that, that Moses wrote about Jesus uh, is that Moses wrote to identify who the Messiah would be. Okay? Uh, and this begins all the way back, if you look with me at Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 1 and 2 shows uh, God creating the world and everything in it, uh, and all his creation was very good. In Genesis 3, we're going to have the fall of man, and the, the first presentation of Christ in the Bible is actually found in Genesis 3. Now, the promise of a Redeemer. We have uh, Adam and Eve who have fallen into sin, and now they have been confronted uh, by God. And uh, God speaks to Adam, and Adam says, "Well, it was the woman that you gave me, God." Uh, and Adam, or Adam's wife Eve, says, "Well, it was the serpent who deceived me." And then God is going to to pronounce a curse uh, upon. Now, each of those parties upon uh, the serpent first in verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And what's being predicted there is that there's going to be a descendant of Eve, a child of Adam and Eve, who's going to one day crush the serpent. Uh, you're like, okay, that's the first message of the gospel, the first promise of a redeemer. But uh, that prophecy really includes every male, right? It doesn't really narrow it down uh, at all. It just says, hey, a descendant of the woman, but raise your hand if you're a descendant from Adam and Eve. We all are, so it doesn't doesn't help us here. And that's where the rest of the book of Genesis is going to narrow all of that down. And, and Moses is going to trace uh, who this Redeemer would be from uh, Adam to Noah, and then from Noah to a man named Abram, whose name is going to be changed to Abraham, uh, and then uh, to his son Isaac, and then to uh, Jacob, whose name is going to change to Israel. God likes name changes, apparently, uh, if you look at the uh, book of Genesis. But over and over again, we see this, this tracing uh, of the, the line of the Messiah. And it goes from Jacob to, to Judah. Uh, and then we're going to see in Genesis chapter 49, if you turn with me over there, uh, that not only is this Redeemer going to, to come from the line of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, but he's going to be... In the line of Judah, Jacob had 12 sons. So you're now we're left with, okay, which one of them is it going to be? And uh, at the end of Genesis, Jacob gathers his sons together while he's uh, getting ready uh, to die. And he's going to prophesy over them what's going to happen in the future. This is actually at the end of days. Let me tell you what's going to take place. And that's Genesis 49. If you look with me at verses 8 through 10, when he speaks of 
his fourth oldest son, Judah, he says this, Judah, your brothers shall praise you, and your hands shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. And Judah is a lion's cub, and from the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, and he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Uh, And it's that last verse, verse 10, that is especially speaking of this future redeemer. We see this future redeemer is also going to be a king, because who is it that has a scepter? A king. Who is it that has the ruler's staff? It's a king, and uh, it says that that scepter, that ruler's staff, shall not depart from Judah. It says, until tribute comes to him. Uh, Or in the NASB, it says, until Shiloh comes, which is kind of a a weird phrasing. And both uh, the ESV and the NASB have a little footnote there uh, that has a little bit of a a better translation. Really, uh, what the Hebrew means is, until he comes to whom it belongs. And the idea of, hey, this scepter, this ruling king staff is going to belong to Judah until the the promised one comes and arrives and it's going to remain with that individual. Uh, So we see that this redeemer promise in Genesis 3 is also going to be a king. Later on in uh, the Old Testament we see in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that this king is going to come from the line of David uh, and uh, this king is also going to be as Moses is going to reveal in, in Deuteronomy, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 18, Moses is going to prophesy and say, hey, the Lord is going to send a prophet like me one day. Uh, and he's going to do the things that I have done and you need to listen to him. Deuteronomy 18 verses 15 through 22. And so we have this, this redeemer who's going to be a king and then he's also going to be a prophet. And then Psalm 110 shows that this redeemer is also going to be a priest. So you have this, this Messiah who's going to come through the line of David. He's going to be redeemer, king, prophet, and priest. All of these things. Uh, and, and this is why the, the Old Testament, and particularly the, the writings of Moses, are important. Be, because it, it shows us, it tells us what to expect from the Messiah. See, in, in the time leading up to uh, Jesus' life, there were actually many, many men who came and said, I'm the Messiah, follow me. But none of them met all of the qualifications of the Messiah. And over and over again in the Old Testament, we see who this Messiah is going to be. All of the, the qualifications of, hey, in the line of David. Later on in the prophets, we see, yeah, born in the city of Bethlehem and, and numerous other things. Uh, but Moses wrote to identify who this Messiah would be so that when he came onto the scene, he would be recognized and received. And there's a... There's a popular movement uh, in the American church uh, today where many, many pastors are saying that as Christians we should uh, unhitch ourselves or, or disconnect from the Old Testament uh, and that we only need to focus upon uh, the New Testament. Uh, one uh, very influential uh, pastor of a, a megachurch uh, in the South, uh, Andy Stanley, recently uh, taught that the modern church needs to unhitch itself from the Old Testament. And he refers to the Old Testament as the Jewish scriptures and the New Testament as uh, the Christian scriptures. 
And, and there's, there's many problems with this. First of all, it's uh, a heresy from the early church known as Marcionism, uh, which only accepts the New Testament and rejects the Old Testament. But, but on a more practical level, if, you, if we unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament, we have no way of identifying Jesus. Well, we have no way of identifying who the Messiah is or what he is going to, to be and, and look like. And uh, there's, a, there's a classic movie uh, called the, the Treasure of Sierra Madre. Now, you may not have ever watched it, but I, I bet there's a, a line in it that you have heard of. Uh, in this movie, there's, there's three men who are digging for gold in the hills of uh, Mexico. Uh, and they strike gold, and then it's all about, okay, they have to, they have to hide uh, this gold find, because if they are, go and announce to everybody that, hey, they found gold, everyone's going to come and take it from them. Uh, and so they're, they're out hiding in the hills and trying to mine out this gold, and this uh, group of bandits comes upon them. Uh, and the bandits initially want to avoid a gunfight. And they, these bandits claim to be uh, the mountain police, or also known as the, the federales. Uh, and so uh, these bandits try and pretend that they're the, the federales. And uh, in the middle of this discussion, uh, Humphrey Bogart's character says, If you're the police, where are your badges? Uh, and one of the bandits gets kind of agitated. Uh, and he says, Badges? We don't need no stinking badges. Uh, and that's what, we, that's what we see in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, we see Jesus' badge. If we want to identify the Messiah, we say, hey, show me that you are the Messiah from Scripture. You need to meet these qualifications. That's going to be your identification marker. And if we, if we unhitch ourselves, if we throw away the Old Testament and only focus upon the New, we're going to really fall for anything. We're not really going to have a, a Messiah built upon and promised in Scripture. We're going to have uh, and follow uh, really anyone and anything. And that's what you, you get so often uh, here in the modern church. The Old Testament serves as the badge of Jesus. And we cannot just disregard it. And so Moses wrote to identify who the coming Messiah would be. But he also wrote about Jesus in other ways. Secondly, Moses wrote to illustrate what the Messiah would do. So who the Messiah would be, and then also to illustrate what the Messiah would do. Uh, And as God the Holy Spirit inspired and and guided Moses in his writing of the Torah, of, of the Pentateuch, there are numerous occasions in those five books when we see uh, our redemption, our salvation, we see that salvation pictured, illustrated for us in the events that take place in those books. And, and this is not an accident. It's, it's there by divine design. Uh, that, that is an intentional uh, authorship mark uh, from God and from Moses. But where and in what ways do Moses' writings illustrate our salvation? What Jesus would do as our Redeemer, as our King, our Prophet, and our Priest? Well, if you go back to Genesis 3, uh, we see that the fall of Adam and Eve, we see them experiencing the curse, but then look at verse 21. Very very tiny verse, and it's easy to, to speed right past the significance of it. But Genesis 3, verse 21, it says, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. 
Now, there's some things that we have to just think about there. Okay, if, if you make clothes out of animal skins, what happened to those animals? They're not walking around skinless. They died. Right? And, and what we begin to see is what, what, what comes as a result of sin? Death. Right? What comes as a result? And then there's also, why did God make them clothes? Because after they had eaten the fruit, what did they have a, a very real sense of? Their own nakedness. Their shame, their guilt before the Lord. And to say, hey, I can't be in the presence of this. I need to cover myself up. And God was gracious in, in providing for them what they really couldn't provide for themselves. They, they attempted to cover themselves with fig leaves. And God says, let me give you something better. Animal skins. Showing, hey, this is the penalty for sin. But also God is going to be the one to provide a covering for our guilt and for our shame. The, the first demonstration of, of what our salvation will look like. If you then turn over to Exodus chapter 12. You probably have a, a chapter heading there. You see the Passover. See, in, in the middle of the, the Exodus story, the tenth and final plague upon Egypt was to be the, the death of every firstborn in the land of Egypt. Death of every firstborn son. And each family among the Israelites was commanded to say, Hey, if you want to avoid the loss of your firstborn son, they needed to take a lamb and kill that lamb. And it wasn't just uh, some random animal. Each of these families would have had flocks and, and animals. And, and you bring that animal into your home and then you kill it. Would you feel the weight of that? Absolutely. And the understanding that this animal needs to die. We've been commanded by God to take its blood uh, and to, to put the blood of this animal on the, the top beam and the sides of our doorpost. And God would see the blood of this lamb when he went throughout Egypt on that single night when every firstborn in Egypt was to die. And God would see the blood and the wrath and the judgment of God would pass over all those who had demonstrated their faith by placing that blood on the doorpost. Well, later on in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Paul says that Christ is our Passover lamb who has been sacrificed for us. Christ's blood has been shed on our behalf so that that wrath might pass over us as well and we might stand safe and secure in this world. Okay, later on, everyone's favorite book in the Old Testament, Leviticus. Right? Uh, it's the book that's your go-to book uh, when you need to maybe sleep or uh, you're, you're awake in the middle of the night. But, but there's actually so much in the book of Leviticus because uh, the entire book of Leviticus lays out a sacrificial system. Uh, and it shows us the importance, uh, again, of what we saw in Genesis 3, that if we're going to sin, there needs to be payment made. That if we're going to sin, something, uh, another animal is going to have to die to make atonement, to cover, to pay the guilts for our sin. And Leviticus 17.11 says this, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement 
by the life. And that's what we see over and over again in all of these sacrifices that needed to be made because of our sin. And then in Leviticus chapter 16, there's something known as the Day of Atonement. Very special day in Israel's annual calendar. On the Day of Atonement, the, the high priest would take two goats uh, and he would cast lots to see which of those goats was going to live and which one was going to die. Uh, and whichever goat was, was taken as the one who was going to die, the high priest would, would slaughter the animal, take its blood, and go into the Holy of Holies, which is the most sacred place in uh, the tabernacle. Uh, where the Ark of the Covenant was, which served as really the throne of the glory of God. And the high priest would go in there and he'd sprinkle blood at the base of the Ark of the Covenant to make atonement, to pay the penalty for the sins of himself first and foremost, and then for the sins of the people. He would go in on a yearly basis. And then he would come back out. And then he, with this other goat... He would come and he would lay his hands on this goat. And this goat was known as the scapegoat. Uh, and the high priest would confess with his hands on the goat's head all of the, the sins, all of the iniquities, all of the transgressions of the people of Israel. And then they would take that goat and they would send it out into the wilderness. And that sending of that goat, confessing all of the sin, laying all of the sins of the people upon that goat and then sending him off represented the, the guilt and the sins of the people being removed from them. Right? It's quite a, quite a picture and it's a, it's a ritual they would do every single year. And the high priest had to do this every single year because the blood of bulls and of goats was not able to satisfy, was not able to cleanse permanently. But what we see in the New Testament, if you really want to read through the book of Hebrews, we're going to see that, that Christ's sacrifice is a once-for-all sacrifice. It doesn't have to be done over and over again each and every year. It's a once-and-for-all sacrifice. His work is now finished and accomplished. And in both Numbers and in Exodus, Moses records how the Lord provided the nation of Israel with water from a rock and manna from heaven. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says, Christ was that rock. He was the one who was providing for you all of those days in the wilderness. And Jesus is the one who provides for his people. He's the one who sustains us, who cares for us all of our days. And there are many other uh, illustrations, even within uh, the Pentateuch, but we can't cover cover all of them today but what would be a helpful question to ask is so why are these in there why are they included why does god uh, through moses record these in the writings of moses why does he give us these pictures well a, a good teacher i know i have some teachers here in the audience a good teacher works from something that is known to something that is unknown Right? If you just start to explain something to a little kid, uh, I can't just go into uh, our upstairs elementary class and start to teach them geometry or trigonometry. Right? Yeah. And I see some of the, the high school students doing a full body shudder. Just there's the mention of trigonometry. Like, no, don't do it. Don't say it. Uh, but, but I can't go and explain those things because those are already unknown. A good teacher is going to work from the known to the unknown. And what we see God doing through Moses is, is using what is known to explain the unknown. 
Uh, using the, the physical, tangible, visible things in our lives to explain the invisible spiritual realities of the miracle of salvation. Moses teaches us what we should know so that when Jesus comes, we have a vivid picture concerning the miracle that he brings about in our lives. And if you were just to, to try and begin to, to say, okay, how would I explain my salvation to somebody else? How would I explain what God has done in my life? You would naturally go to word pictures. Even saying that God has saved me has a connotation that you needed to be rescued. That's a word picture in and of itself that you needed to be reconciled. Well, there was hostility between you and God, and Jesus has brought you together. Moses builds all of these concepts of our salvation in our minds, and his writings inform our imaginations with pictures that help us to understand what Jesus has done for us. And then suddenly, we begin to see the many ways that the Old Testament illustrates our salvation. We have a clear and vivid picture and bright colors of all that Jesus has done for us. If we no longer trust in ourselves and we trust in Christ, all of these things can be said and be true. And then when we see them in the New Testament, we say, Jesus is our Passover lamb. Well, we understand what that means and, and a picture that comes along with that. We understand, hey, Jesus is our scapegoat, the one who, who carries our sin away from us. Jesus is our sacrifice, the one whose blood has brought peace, reconciliation, and restoration to a broken relationship with God. Jesus is our rock, our sustainer. All of these pictures, all of these illustrations help us to understand the truth of the gospel and what God does in us through Christ. And all of this should inform and increase our worship and devotion. And you can think of it this way. Uh, in a couple of days, we'll probably all be opening presents. Uh, and if you've ever received a present that you're not quite sure what it's good for, you're like, well, okay, thank you. Uh, and you're always thankful to the person for giving it to you. You're like, I appreciate this, uh, but I'm not really sure what to do with it, right? Uh, and so you might not see what this gift is good for, but as time goes on, you do something that most men will never do. You read the instruction manual. Uh, and you read the instruction manual and you begin to realize, oh, hey, there's a lot of things that this gift can do. There's a lot of ways that this gift can be beneficial in my life. In fact, this gift can transform my life. On a day-to-day basis, this can just change utterly and completely the way that I live. And as you continue to read this instruction manual, you begin to see the value of this gift. And not only that, you begin to see how expensive it is and what the person who gave it to you had to do in order to obtain it and give it to you. You begin to see the full weight and the value, the majesty and glory of the gift that has been given to you. That's really what the Old Testament does. We begin to really see and understand the full weight of sin. Right? Because we can talk about sin. Like, yes, it'll, it'll cost you, it separates you from God. But that's, that's one thing. But then when, if you were there in Old Testament times and you see an animal die because of what you have done, that, that rests at home a lot heavier than just this abstract idea in the sky, doesn't it? And you would have had to be the one to go and take him to the priest, take the animal, 
And it wasn't, it wasn't just a, well, let me go take this animal and then the priest uh, will, will handle everything. I'll take this, this lamb that I own that is dear to me and I'll just take it there and then I'll watch the priest do his thing. That was not it. You would go. You would bring your animal to the, the priest. You would kill the lamb. You would see the cost of your sin. Death. And then you would suddenly have a, a realization and understanding of, yes, to atone for sin requires blood. And again, when we see and understand that, we realize, how have we been cleansed? By the blood of Jesus. We've been cleansed by Him giving His life on the cross. That all of our sins are borne by Him in the same way that that scapegoat bore all of the sins of Israel. All of our sin has been placed upon Christ. And He endured all of the wrath that our sins deserved on the cross. See, the, the, the Old Testament illustrates the beauty, the power, and the glory of our salvation. Of all that Jesus has done for us and all that He continues to do on our behalf as our Redeemer, our King, our Prophet, and our Priest. And Moses wrote in such a way that he identified who the Messiah would be and he illustrated what the Messiah would do. And then a third way that Moses wrote about Jesus is that Moses himself was an image of the Messiah to come. Okay? Moses himself was an image of the Messiah to come. And what do I mean by that? Well, what God did through Moses, he would later do through Jesus. You can think of it this way. Moses led an exodus from Egypt, right? He delivered the nation of Israel from physical slavery in the land of Egypt. He brought about freedom and redemption, rescuing the people from slavery. And he brought them to Mount Sinai. They were saved by God for the purpose of serving and worshiping. Right? God didn't bring the people out of Israel and just say, okay, now I've saved you, go do your thing. Whatever you want to do, you can go do. Right? You can go live wherever you want to live and, and do whatever. No, God says, no, I'm saving you from Egypt to take you to Canaan so that you can be a nation and a people to represent me before the world. That is why God saved Israel through the Exodus. And Israel was saved by God's power and grace alone. If you look at Exodus chapter 13, if you go read there, there, there's four times in a single chapter it says, the only reason that you're saved is by my right hand. God's strong right hand saved and rescued Israel from their slavery. And Israel was saved from death by the blood of the Passover lamb, which we've talked about already. And Jesus is a new Moses leading a new exodus. Okay, and again, what did Mo Moses prophesy? He says, hey, God is one day going to send a prophet like me. And you shall listen to him. And so in what way is Jesus a new Moses? Well, Jesus isn't leading or rescuing people from physical slavery. He's rescuing us from a spiritual slavery to sin. And we are all in bondage under the weight and oppression of our own sin before a holy God. And Jesus rescues us from that spiritual slavery. And Jesus is saving a people for the purpose of serving and worshiping him. Kind of in the same way that God said, okay, Israel, I'm saving you and calling you to worship me. What does 
Christ do with us? He says, okay, I'm saving you, and now I want you to worship me and represent me before the, a watching world. You're, we are called to be his ambassadors, to carry forth his message, to represent him, to beg and implore people to be reconciled to God through him. And we are saved by God's power and grace alone. Just as the Israelites were brought out of Egypt by God's power and grace alone. And we are saved by the death, by the blood of Christ, our Passover lamb, in that same way. Now, And the, this fact that, that Jesus is the new Moses, it's seen throughout the, the New Testament. Uh, Acts chapter 7, uh, which we read uh, several weeks ago just at, as a church, Stephen's uh, long sermon. And Stephen is giving this sermon to the Jewish leaders who crucified Christ. The very same leaders that had Christ put to death, Stephen boldly stands up and says, Hey, remember it, back uh, in, in history, in, in the first generation of Israel, when, when God used Moses to, to redeem and rescue Israel out of Egypt? And then do you remember when our forefathers rejected Moses and they said, Hey, let's go back to Egypt. We don't want to follow Moses anymore. Stephen says, You are the same exact way. They rejected Moses, but now you've rejected the new Moses. You've rejected Jesus, whom God the Father has sent to rescue us. Stephen says, you crucified him. And ultimately, they did to Stephen what they did to Jesus. They murdered him. They stoned him to death. Uh, In... In the sports world uh, today, there's coaches and and commentators and and sports writers. We're always talking uh, about the up-and-coming prospects uh, of the future. Uh, And in talking about those future prospects, what they have this tendency of doing uh, is looking back uh, at uh, past players, past athletes, and comparing them to those up-and-coming athletes. And says, oh, this this guy is going to play like this one. And uh, the reason they make that comparison is to to show a a player's uh, talent level and potential and compare his his playing style and do all of this. And, uh, And every coach is, of course, looking for that next great talent. And in the basketball world for a long time, they say, Who, who's going to be the next Michael Jordan? Right? Uh, and they asked that question because Michael Jordan was the, the greatest player of his generation and he, he fundamentally changed really the way that, that basketball was played. Uh, and everybody who's playing now really grew up watching and emulating Michael Jordan. Uh, and uh, during the 80s and 90s, there was no doubt this is, Michael Jordan was the Messiah of basketball. He saved it and redeemed it, and now everybody wants to to be like Mike. Anyone remember those commercials, the Gatorade commercials? Uh, And that was the the desire, and that was what the sporting world does, comparison one person to another. But we also see Matthew in his gospel do something similar. And he's going to draw all of these connections between Moses and Jesus. He says, hey, Jesus is doing exactly what Moses did, but he's going to do it to an even greater degree. Uh, and Moses, uh, again, lay, led a, a physical exodus, and Jesus is the new Moses leading a new and a greater exodus. And if you, if you read through the Gospel of Matthew over the next couple of days, which I would encourage you to do, especially uh, the birth narrative, but what you begin to see is that that Matthew writes and, and he emphasizes that, that both Moses and Jesus escaped from kings who were trying to kill children, right? 
You ever notice that? Pharaoh in uh, Exodus uh, and King Herod in Matthew. Both trying to, to wipe out all of the male children. Right? And both Moses and Jesus survived that. Both Moses and Jesus came out of Egypt. Both of them passed through the water. Moses through the Red Sea and Jesus through the waters of baptism. They were both tested in the wilderness. They both instructed people on a mountain. Moses gave the law on Mount Sinai and Jesus gave uh, the sermon on the mount, which really was an explanation, uh, a sermon on the law that Moses received at Mount Sinai. Moses led the 12 tribes. Jesus led the 12 disciples. And both chose and instructed their successor on a mountain. Moses with Joshua in Deuteronomy 31 and Jesus with his disciples on Matthew in Matthew 28. But why do Matthew and these other New Testament authors draw this connection between Moses and Jesus? And they do it to help us see and understand the glory and the majesty that he possesses. Uh, by by comparison, what by comparison, by comparing what is lesser to what is greater, that, that is what they are highlighting. That's what they are showing, uh, and and they're showing that Jesus is greater than Moses. But again, if you if you were to parachute down into the time of Jesus, right where we are in John's Gospel, uh, and you ask the Pharisees who's the greatest Jew that has ever lived, what would their answer be? Moses, without a doubt. Like, they wouldn't even have a, a split-second hesitation. They would say that Moses is the greatest person that, to have ever lived. But over and over again, we see that Jesus is greater. And he's greater than Moses. And then elsewhere in the, in the New Testament, he's compared and contrasted with others. We see that he's the, the new, the, the second, the greater Adam. That he's uh, the greatest of the Davidic kings. And then if you... You read the book of Hebrews, uh, you can just say that Jesus is the best. Uh, he is greater than angels. He is greater than Aaron. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than the Old Testament sacrifices. He has a greater priesthood. He's the mediator of a better covenant. His sacrifice is, is greater. All, all of these uh, things that the, the book of Hebrews just, just lays out for us. But then it culminates in, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. And uh, the author of Hebrews is saying all of these things that, hey, Jesus is better than you name it, and he's better but all of that builds to Hebrews 11.1 1, where the, the response that the author is going for is faith. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And, and the proper response to, to seeing and beholding Jesus, to, to seeing his identity, to see all of these illustrations of what he has done on our behalf. To see that he is the new and greater Moses. That he is leading us. We are part of the new exodus. That he is saving us and redeeming us out of slavery and bondage to sin. When we see and behold all of these things, we are intended to respond with faith. Which leads us to the fourth and final way that, that Moses writes about Jesus. That Moses wrote to instruct us how to respond to the Messiah. See, Moses didn't just tell us about some abstract person. Say, here is the, the coming Messiah. Here is what you can expect from him. 
Here's who he is going to be. And this is how you better respond. This is the, the so what. And over the course of Moses' writings, he, he emphasizes humanity's sinfulness and need for a Savior, our need for someone to come and reconcile us, to restore us in a relationship with God. And over and over again, Mo- Moses points to faith as the proper response to God. If you turn with me over to, to Genesis chapter 15. has been from the very beginning that God saves us not by works that we do, not through our own human efforts, but God saves us on the basis of faith. God had called Abraham to follow him, or he's Abram at this point, and Abram had doubts. He had obeyed partially, but he still had wrestlings and doubts in his heart about these promises of God. And then He finally trusted and believed in God. In Genesis 15, verse 6, it says, And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Uh, At the moment Abram believed, he was then righteous before God. Not on the basis of things that he had done, because he now trusted no longer in himself, but he now trusted in the Lord and what God had promised to him. So Moses establishes the right response to God is faith. If you turn over to Numbers chapter 21, another passage that demonstrates the right response to God. Numbers chapter 21, Israel is at it again. They are rebelling against God. And in judgment for their sin, God sends serpents into the camp. He says, all right, you want to rebel against me? Here's some serpents. And the people cry out to God in prayer, asking for deliverance. And if, if you think about this, God could have just said, okay, you've learned your lesson. Let me take away the snakes now. I put them there. I can, let me take them back. But, but God doesn't do that. What does he do? He says, okay, Moses, take some time. Go make a bronze serpent. Moses is like, how do I do that? Just go do it. Uh, and so he, he makes this bronze serpent by the instruction of God. And he says, okay, hold up this serpent in the middle of the camp and tell everybody that if they want to be saved, if they want to live, they look to this big bronze serpent and they will be saved. Now God, God did that to emphasize what? They would save themselves merely by looking, merely by trusting in his word. And later on, as we saw in John chapter 3, Jesus points back to that and says, Hey, the Son of Man, Jesus himself, is going to be like that bronze serpent who would be lifted up. And everybody looks to him in order to be saved, in order to, to live. So we have these, these positive examples of what faith looks like. In, in the writings of Moses, right? But we don't just have positive examples. What else do we have? A whole bunch of negative examples. We have a whole bunch of instances where uh, the nation of Israel is not responding in faith. They're responding in unbelief. They respond in, in rebellion and grumbling and complaining. Uh, and this is most clearly seen in, in the wilderness generation. We see this hard-heartedness of the people and how it leads to suffering and sorrow in their lives. Right, uh, And the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 looks back uh, at these writings of Moses and, and says that, 
that those writings, what Moses recorded, was written for our instruction. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. It says, Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now I was supposed to have verse 6, not verse 5. Jump there. But Paul makes this emphasis that these things were written down and recorded so that we would learn. Verse 6 says, Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. And in verse 11, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. And so these things were written for our instruction. And I've been reading this book on reading uh, recently. You're like, you read a book about reading? Yes, I, I do those weird things. And the author made a really good point that I'd never thought of before. Uh, she says that when we read a book, we are naturally brought to the point of, of judging and evaluating the characters in that book. That, that, the, the things that take place, the events, uh, the people, the decisions that they make, well, as we read, what do we naturally do? Say, I can't believe that they're doing that. Or like, oh, that, that was a tough decision, but that was the right decision. Uh, this author says that the, the act of judging the character of a character shapes the reader's own character. Right? Uh, and you, know, you see more and more of why Jesus or why God gave us a book rather than a YouTube video. Right? Uh, he gave us a book so that we would wrestle with it. So that we would place ourselves in the stories that we read. That we would learn and grow. That we would have to make these decisions along uh, with the people in the Old Testament. And, and it's really easy to, to read the, the books of Moses. To read about that, that really hard-hearted, rebellious generation uh, of Israel. And what do we typically feel when we read those stories? Like those, those knuckleheads, what are they doing? They're doing this again? Haven't they learned? Can't they see? Because we naturally, as we read that, we make a judgment. We make an evaluation. And in our hearts and minds, what do we do? We, we condemn them. Right? And, and that's what God wants us to do. But do you know what else he wants us to do? To see it, to learn from it, and to not do what they do. And it's really easy to condemn. It's a little bit harder to not do exactly what they do. And what we should do as we read is place ourselves in those stories, begin to, to see and to evaluate, and then say, okay, what would I do? And begin to see the results of their decisions. So, okay, this is, this is the choice that they had. This is what they decided to do. And then here are the results. And as we do that, we begin to see, okay, what was planted and what was harvested. And then we begin to, to take those lessons and apply them to our own lives. And it's remarkable how often we face some of the same decisions in our own heart, in our own life. Hey, am, am I going to trust my own wisdom? Am I going to follow my own heart and do what I think is best here? Or am I going to say, okay, God, what would you have me do? What are you calling me to do in obedience to you and to your word, Lord? And seeing and understanding that. So as we read, say, am I going to trust in the sure and steadfast word of God or in myself? And reading the Bible places us in each of those situations. And, and 
The Old Testament scriptures give us warnings and guidance, but they also give us hope. Romans 15.4 says this, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And that's what the Old Testament provides to us. Strength, encouragement, hope in our times of need, so that when we look to Christ in faith, that is exactly what we receive. And my prayer would be that we we not only see and behold Jesus just this week, and I'm not sure how successful or unsuccessful you've been at focusing upon Christ uh, during this Advent season. Uh, But my prayer is that we would see and behold Jesus for all that he is. That we would see and look upon him, thinking about all that he has done and all that our salvation has cost him. Again, thinking back to, to what Moses has written about him, what all of the prophets have written about him. Beholding Christ each and every day, thanking him, praising him. And may we also commit ourselves to, to gazing upon him in his word. I was reading uh, Systematic Theology uh, this year as well, and just, just working through it, and it had a section called The Dynamics of Sanctification. Very, very intriguing portion of the book. Uh, and it just kind of asked, of why, uh, why does reading God's Word and fellowshipping with God's people and, and hearing the Word proclaimed and going to, to, to God in prayer, why do those things work in our lives to sanctify us? It's a good question, right? And the answer that they gave is because each of those things, reading God's word, praying, coming and hearing the scriptures preached, fellowshipping with God's people, each of those things puts Christ on display before us. We begin to to see him and then we are sanctified as we see Christ more and more clearly in our lives. The more we see of Jesus, the more we understand, the more we become like him. That's why we must behold him again. And that's why the the word of God has given us all of these illustrations to engage our imagination. To help us to, to think about all that Christ has done on our behalf and continues to do. May we think about all the ways that Moses has written about Christ. As we've seen this morning, of hey, to identify who he would be, what he would do. That Moses himself is a picture, an image of the Christ who was to come. And then Moses also instructs us concerning how we are to respond to Jesus. And again, of it, there's so many things that are competing for our time this week, this month, I'm sure all of us feel feel stretched and, and exhausted. But are we feeling stretched and exhausted for the right reasons? Right? Not just for the, the busyness of getting together with others and doing shopping and, and focusing on other things, but are, are we spending time, making time to behold and contemplate the advent of Christ, to think about and behold his humble birth. And we read Luke chapter 2 this morning as our scripture reading. And I know you're you're probably familiar with that passage tremendously, 
right? But when was the last time you just paused to think about it? Not that you went to read it. When was the last time you just said, okay, let me, let me put aside my, my smartphone, my computer, you turn off the TV. When was the last time you just sat and said, let me contemplate the scene that is described in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 20? Let me contemplate that the glory of, of angels coming and singing and, and worshiping this baby lying in a manger. Let me contemplate God the Son humbling himself and not being born in a palace, which he could have arranged, but being born in a lowly stable, in it, being laid in a manger. When was the last time we, we contemplated that? <clears throat> And realize this is the one whom Moses wrote about. This is the one who was predicted hundreds, thousands of years prior. All that he would be, all that he would do, was told to us in advance. And we need to think about that. and Contemplate that. This week, and really every single day of our lives. And understanding that, that, yes, Jesus is revealed to us in the New Testament. But he's also revealed to us in the Old Testament. And that Old Testament adds color and vividness and clarity to Christ's sacrifice, to his death on the cross. And we cannot just focus exclusively on the New Testament. But uh, my prayer would be that we would be able to, to gather together again on Tuesday night to praise and worship Christ our Lord to celebrate his coming into the world. To save us, to rescue us, to be our king, our redeemer, our prophet, and our priest. Amen.